you would open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 2. We're going to do Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41. It's a sizable passage. We'll be preaching about a preacher. We are, there will be a sermon about a sermon. Uh, we're looking at a sermon that Peter preached. Um, so his is a lot better than mine will be. I can promise you that. But Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41. This is the word of the Lord. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, all of you who lived in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No! This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with the joy of your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently, the brother patriarch died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other disciples, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord your God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Let's pray. God. We thank you. We thank you for this little peek into the first sermon in the first church service ever recorded. God, we thank you for uh, 
the presence of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that Jesus Christ died for our sins. As we look at this passage today, Father, I pray that you'd stir in us, first of all, a conviction that yes, we are sinners, and yes, we are desperately in need of Jesus Christ. But God, I pray also that you would bring us a deep sense of sorrow for our sins. What we do daily is the reason you died for us. Bring conviction to our hearts. Bring repentance to our hearts. But also, God, I pray that the number one priority in everything we do every day is to share the good news of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would open up opportunities. We pray it in his name. Amen. Preaching is hard anyways. You're afraid you're going to say something you shouldn't, which I do all the time. But it's also hard to stand in this place because of the history that's here. Many years ago, there was a man who was an elder of this church. His name was Jim Dixon. He was in the choir. And a young girl from Presbyterian came and just gave her testimony. She told people how Jesus had changed her life. Simple story. But many people, including Jim Dixon, that day became a Christian. He was an elder of this church but he never seriously considered what it meant to be a sinner and what it meant to need Jesus Christ. And anyone who knew Mr. Jim knew that his life completely changed. He became obsessed, in a good way, with telling people the good news of Jesus Christ. And it happened right here. And that man poured into so many people, particularly Evan, He died two years after I'd gotten here. And I would go to his house and he would spend so much time praying. And he would ask me, have you shared the gospel of Jesus Christ today? That is the center of this passage. You see, because Jesus was raised, because he was exalted, we should repent, we should be baptized, and we should receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What we're going to hear today isn't anything new. This is the very bare bones of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we all need it desperately. So I'd encourage you, keep your Bibles open and dig with me together. If you remember the context of this, it was two weeks ago that we talked about it. Jesus had been seen. He had risen from the dead. He'd been seen by many people. He ascended into heaven. And the Holy, the Holy Spirit came on the apostles at Pentecost. We talked about how they started speaking in other languages. There had been visitors who had come to Jerusalem from all sorts of different places. And these, these different apostles and disciples had begun speaking in these different languages that the people recognized. And the audience is made up of Jews or converts to Judaism scattered throughout the world who had come to Jerusalem for this very important feast day. And so some people begin to scatter because some people say, ah, oh, they're just drunk. But Peter begins to preach, and he says, no, they're not drunk. They're speaking your languages. They're speaking other languages. And it's because the Holy Spirit came, and he gives this sermon. And two things that I want you to notice. First of all, the importance of the Old Testament. Almost everything that Peter, the bulk of this passage, is he's quoting the Old Testament from memory. When's the last time you memorized five or six verses so that you could share the gospel? Peter here is quoting verses from the Old Testament. But also he shows that Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension is the very essential part that makes sense of that Old Testament so he can call people to faith. And that's what we're looking at today. So that was the context. Those people, I want you to even picture in your mind, there's some people that are beginning to scatter. There's others that are sort of curious. And then Peter stands up. And if you look at verses 14 to 21, 
he focuses on the coming of the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't talk about what just happened. He points to the Old Testament, to the book of Joel, which is what we read in our Old Testament passage earlier today. Now, the book of Joel was dated right after the exile. So essentially what had happened is the people of God had come back from an entire, two entire generations who had been far away in Babylon, and they've just come back, and their nation is in ruins. Literally, there is nothing left. And so that section that talked about locusts, it's sort of like when you look at a field, after the locust swarm would come, they left nothing. When the Babylonians had come to Jerusalem, they left nothing. And God's people come back to their city, and there's nothing left. And you know what the main themes of the book of Joel are? The day of the Lord, when God will deliver His people. Repentance, the importance of turning away from sin, crying out to God and He will hear you. That God is in the midst of His people, that the Holy Spirit will come. The exact same things that you see in the New Testament. The book starts with this, these locusts, but it moves towards salvation. And it calls people to repentance. At the beginning in, in, in Joel chapter 2, verse 12, literally what it says, Even now declares the Lord, return to me with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for He is gracious and compassionate. Who knows? He may have pity and turn. The whole book is talking about redemption and being changed and how we need God's forgiveness. And Peter quotes that chapter. They would have recognized that part. And he quotes this. And he calls them towards hope. And if you look in our passage in Acts 2, in verse 17, first he says, in these last days. That was 2,000 years ago. Whoops, Peter got it wrong, right? Wrong. Here's what he did. I want you to think about history of, of, of everything. The way the Bible describes it, first you have creation, how God created the whole world. And then you have the fall, that's the second big epoch where where everything was changed. But then after a long time when sin reigned, you have everything that's pointing to when Jesus would come. That's redemption. And after redemption, there's only one more thing to come, and that's glorification. We are in that last section of time. For these past 2,000 years, we have just been eagerly waiting, Lord, Jesus, come soon. We are in the last days. And that's what he says here. He he says, in these last days, and it says that the Spirit was poured out. And we see the effects of this. They were speaking in other languages so that people could hear the gospel. And what is evidence of the Spirit being poured out? We've talked about this for several weeks. Evidence of the Spirit working is, number one, the teaching of the Word. And number two, the service, the work, the, the, the sacrifice of the church. And what are the implications? God is His Holy Spirit never leaves us, never forsakes us. If you look also in this passage, gender, class, age, none of those really matter. If you look here, no kind of person is excluded from receiving the Holy Spirit. God is not partial to men or partial to women. In our family, she's not here right now, so I can embarrass her. In our family, we have prioritized my wife being able to go to seminary. We'd gone together before we had a baby, and she was so close to graduating, and she said, ah, it's not that big a deal. The service of the church, teaching our children, teaching our women, is just as important for men as it is for women. We need to prepare. We need to think carefully. We need to serve to the best of our abilities. It's not just, ah, it's just twos and three-year-olds. It matters. And here we see that God's Spirit is poured out on men 
just as much as women. God is not partial to the wealthy or to the poor. You see, the Holy Spirit does not need an education to give forth the gospel. Uh, when my dad, when we were missionaries in Colombia, South America, I remember I was, uh, I was about in, in fifth grade, and there was a man who, had, who was a pastor of a church, small church. His name was Umberto. He had a third grade education. But he was the one who knew the scriptures best in his church. So he barely knew how to read. But that man had more of the scripture memorized than anyone I've ever met. And he would quote scriptures and he would make up these goofy songs uh, so that people of his church could memorize scripture with him. Education is important, sure, plan, but God, the Holy Spirit doesn't need it. He can use anyone. It's not just not the wealthy, it's not just men or women. God's not partial to age. I want you to think carefully. He doesn't just need adults. He doesn't just need uh, us who know everything. Think about how many times your children have used, God has used your children to show you the need for repentance. It happens daily in our home. God uses my children to teach me. Here it says the Spirit will be poured out on your men, on your women, the old men, the young men, children. It doesn't matter. And if you look here, all of creation is subject to God. It uses this imagery of blood, fire, smoke, and darkness. It should remind us of the ten plagues of Egypt when God showed His power, when the pillars of fire and smoke went before Him. But I call a special attention to where it says the sun would be turned to darkness. Yes, this was one of the plagues, but I want you to think, when Jesus Christ died, what is it that happened? Luke chapter 23, verse 44 says it was about the sixth hour. Darkness had come over the whole land until the ninth hour. In the middle of the day when Jesus was being crucified, it was dark. Why? The sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit. When he said that, he breathed his last. Do you realize the creator of the universe died for you, and creation didn't know what on earth to do? This was the man who had held the universe together. He died for you. And so in the book of Joel, where it's talking about how all creation is shaken, that's exactly what happened when Jesus died for us. But look at the very end, there in verse 21, it uses Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, here's what's amazing. If you look at this passage in Joel, L-O-R-D there is completely capitalized. And I've mentioned this to you. This was sort of like God's family name. You only use this name if you were part of his family. Well, here it's not just making reference to God or Yahweh. Literally, throughout this whole passage, when it says Lord there, it's talking about Jesus Christ. Christ. If you look at verse 30, 36 later, it, it, it says, whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. Why does that matter? From the very beginning of the church, they understood Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Now, if you'll look in your red Trinity hymn, no, we're not done yet. Nice try. But if you look and turn to the back, turn to page 846. There's several things in here that are incredibly helpful 845 is the Apostles' Creed, which we read all the time. But if you look at 846, this is the Nicene Creed. This was written in the 4th century. And if you look at the section, the first section is about God the Father. The second section is about the God the Son. The third section is about the Holy Spirit, the church, and several other things. Which of those is the longest? The one about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's no coincidence. Now, many times, if you look, if you watch the History Channel or things like that, they will say, oh, this idea of Jesus being the Son of God came up in the 4th century. This creed was written in the 4th century. 
but there are creeds before that. And if we look at our passage today, which was in the very first century, you see Peter uses the word Lord, God, and Jesus interchangeably. They believed with their whole hearts that Jesus was the Son of God. Let me ask you, do you stop and think about your, the technical term is Christology, what you believe about Jesus Christ? We're going to come to this later. But do you really ponder the miracle? The same word that in movies people toss around like a bad word. This is the Son of God. It should blow our minds that He came for us. And in the Old Testament, it was foretold, and Peter recognized it. Because of what he did, I am saved. In the next section, verses 22 to 36 of Acts chapter 2, we see how Christ's resurrection and ascension are figured in two psalms. Psalm 16 and then Psalm 110. First, in verses 22 to 24, you see Christ's death and resurrection. You see, Christ's miracle had been attested by different miracles and signs and wonders. These were proof that he was showing that he was the Son of God. And in verse 7 and 12, when people see, see, saw miracles that the apostles were doing, they were amazed. And so here, Peter is showing, look, all these miracles that he was doing was to prove to us that he was the Son of God. And verse 23, though, this is amazing. It says, by God's set Purpose and foreknowledge. What happened? Jesus died. He was handed over to wicked men. This didn't take God by surprise. That word foreknowledge appears eight times in the New Testament, six times is in the book of Acts. It's emphasized here that God knew exactly what he was doing. And then, so first of all, you see that God knew exactly what he was doing. But if you look at verse, the second part of verse 23... Literally, it shows that these people still had personal responsibility for Christ's death. They handed over, crucified, and killed him. Yes, God is in control. Yes, God is guiding. But it was still their responsibility for their actions. Somehow, throughout Scripture, you will see this tension between God's absolute providence and control. And yet, we are responsible for our actions. Therefore, we need to ask for forgiveness. And Peter presents both of those to the people here. Yet... And what's amazing here is, that it, it, in verse 24, he talks about having loosed the pangs of death. In your Bible, it says the agony. But that, that word pangs, in, in, in the New Testament, whenever it uses that, the imagery is of childbirth. He's mixing the metaphors of life and death. And it's, it's literally that Jesus broke those bonds. There was a commentator that I wrote. This is the way he described how Jesus couldn't be held in the tomb, couldn't be held by death. The abyss can no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. When a woman is about to have a baby, I double-dog dare you to tell her not to push. And that's exactly what happened here. Death could not hold him. And Peter's blown away by it. And because death couldn't hold him, death cannot reign over us. In verse 25 to 28, he's referencing Psalm 16. If you look, if you notice, both with Joel and with Psalm, it's kind of indented. So you can kind of see this is referencing the Old Testament. And if you look at the very end, there's a little, there's a little letter. And if you follow that letter down to the bottom, it shows you that he was quoting Psalm 16. Psalm 16 in the Old Testament is about the allocation of land. So when God's people was given a section of land, they were praising God and they were showing how content they were with the, with the portion that God had given them. And verses 5 through 6 of Psalm 16 shows delight in God's constant presence and in the hope of everlasting. But Psalm 16 here where it's quoted in Acts 
is talking not just about the contentment of God's people or of of David in this case, but of, of someone else. You see, in verse 25, first of all, it's trust in God. In verse 26, if you look there, it says, my body will live in hope. In the, in the, that, that word could also be flesh, and it's referencing how in heaven you will have a real body. Why? Because God, sorry, Jesus Christ had a real body, and his body gives us hope. We will have a real physical existence, the Bible teaches us. But then in verse 27, read what it says. It describes the grave. And it says, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Yes, this is a hope that we have We are sanctified. We've been made holy by God, and so we will not see decay. And that is a hope that we have. But Peter shows it's not just for us. This was talking about Jesus Christ. Luke 23, 43, when he's being crucified next to the robber, what does he say to the robber? Today you will be with me in paradise. Death would not have its hold over Jesus Christ. And how does Peter recognize that? How does he see it? He looks back to the Old Testament. He says, see, the Old Testament was talking about this all along. 3,000 years before Jesus even came, it had been written. We'd been singing about it. This is the song that we sang, that song that we, you know, I, I didn't even know it very well. That's what it's talking about. The glories of when Jesus Christ would come. Then if you look at verses 29 to 36, you see David, he talks about how David's body decayed. Now, According to tradition, David was buried in Jerusalem. Then his body was moved to Bethlehem. Then it was moved back to Jerusalem. Okay? Because it was, he was a very important king. Now, he'd been buried into Jerusalem. And in the time of Jesus, according to tradition, so take it with a grain of salt, um, there was a rumor about how Herod had tried to dig up David's uh, remains, but a big explosion of fire had come out. So instead, he realized, I'm not going to take these bones out. Instead, he built a big monument. That monument actually did exist. And Peter is preaching. And that monument was at the Pool of Siloam, which is a stone's throw from where Peter is preaching. So he stands there and he says, look, you can see the tomb of David. Here it says his body will not see decay. Sorry to tell you, but David did see decay. He died. So who is this talking about? It's talking about one of his descendants. And if you look at Luke chapter 2, there's a genealogy, and, and, and the writer shows how David's great-great-great-great-great-grandson was Jesus Christ, who was born. He fulfilled the Davidic line. You see, Christ's body didn't see decay in Psalm 27. And so, in verse 31, earlier, you, it says, you will not let your body see decay, and it's talking about the future. By the time you get to verse 31, he says, he was not abandoned passed to the grave, nor did his body see decay. He's using, in in grammatical terms, he's using the past tense. This happened just a few weeks ago, and Jesus' body did not see decay. You can still see David's tomb here. You go to Jesus' tomb, it's empty. He did not see decay. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we have the earliest Christian record of how Christians were taught of this. And this is what 1 Corinthians 15 says. Brothers, I remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold strongly to the word I preached. I received what I pass on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then all the apostles, and Peter goes on. That was the absolute central element of the gospel. Jesus really came, 
Jesus really died. Jesus really rose from the dead. Jesus really went to heaven. Therefore, our lives are different. Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. He received from the Father the promise of the Spirit. And thus, Jesus pours out on the audience the gift of the Spirit. And these miracles that they're seeing right there, these different languages, and and later we're going to see people are going to start to be healed. These miracles are proof that the Holy Spirit had come. And then he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is a passage that Jesus quoted about himself. And then the book of Hebrews quotes about himself, showing that Jesus was the fulfillment of David. So I ask you, this Christ whom they crucified, do we actually think about him? Do you seek to, when you read the Old Testament, do you seek to see how how Christ fulfilled it in the New Testament? Are you consumed by his words or actions? Or can you tell me more facts about The Bachelor or football scores than you can about Jesus Christ's life? What are the things that we ponder? What are the things that we consider important? Do we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to know Jesus better? You read it, you will not be the same. Jesus was amazing. And that's what Peter is saying here throughout all of Scripture. And so what do we see in verse 37 to 41? This finishes it out. They were cut to the heart. Their hearts were changed. John the Baptist, when he preached about Jesus who still hadn't come in Luke chapter 3, people around him asked, what must we do? In this section here, he calls them to repentance, to baptism, and to receiving the Holy Spirit. He says, become part of God's family. And again, this isn't just, and again, he shows this is for people who are far away. Remember his audience. He has all sorts of different people, different kinds of people, different languages around him. These are for people who are far away and who are near. This is for children. The age doesn't matter. For, For the young, for the old, this is for everyone. He warns and pleads them. He urges them. It's, there's a sense of urgency. Today is the day. Don't wait another day. And it says here that 3,000 were added to their number. And at this point, the church was begun. And the church proceeded from here. And we're going to see what that church looked like next week. So feel free to read ahead if you would like. But what I want to also encourage you to think about what do you think happened to these people? If you remember, we had to draw a big map because in, in the first section of chapter 2, there was all these weird names, Cappadocia and Phrygia, Pontus and Egypt and all these different places. What do you think happened to them when their visit to Jerusalem was over? They'd heard the gospel. They'd become baptized. What do you think they did when they went home? They told people about Jesus. And all of a sudden, churches were scattered through the entire Roman Empire. At the beginning of this chapter, we were saying, you know, Jesus had said he wanted the gospel to go everywhere. And God, you picked fishermen. I don't think it can happen. Holy Spirit didn't have any trouble spreading the gospel to the furthest reaches of the earth. So what I'd encourage you, first of all, look at what Jesus did. Read what he said. It will cut you to the heart. If you read it carefully, if you ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, you will see some of the things that Jesus did and some of the things that he said. And you can, all you can say is, why would a person do that? And the only answer is because he loved us. Second of all, believe that he is the fulfillment of the whole Bible. As you read the entirety of scriptures, see how Jesus is at the very center of it. When you read the book of Judges and you're frustrated, what is wrong with these people? And the way they failed, Jesus never fails us. When you read the story of David and you just see him making awful mistakes, in the same way that that king could not fulfill the promises Jesus was able to. In the good, in the bad, in the ugly, man, God still loves us. 
And he was promising his son to come. Lastly, be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. That is external signs of becoming part of God's church. It's commanded. So if this happens for the first time, when if you recognize that you've been living a life without Christ and you need it, I encourage you, talk to one of the elders, talk to me, talk to a deacon, talk to somebody who invited you. Take the time to actually ask God to lead your life. Your life is not your own. To ask Him for forgiveness. But once that happens for the first time, it should happen daily thereafter. We need to recognize our need to Him. We need to recognize our daily failures, that we totally depend on Him, and that we should seek to share this message that more would be added to our number. This coming week, I won't be here. Um, My sister just had a baby, so I'm going to go visit her. But there are members of my family that don't know Jesus. And it's so hard. But one of the things I'm most nervous about I'm flying with three kids. I'm, I'm a little nervous about that. The thing I'm most nervous about is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I can't wait. I've been praying for some of these members of my family for my entire life. Tell people the gospel of Jesus Christ. Eternity hangs in the balance. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. And we thank you for the fact that we can worship you together. We thank you for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that, first of all, this message would transform us, that we would not remain in our sin, that we would not be complacent uh, with uh, our personality or or those things that are really presenting just sin. I pray that you would wrestle it from our hearts, take it away. That when people look at our lives, they would see not perfect people, but forgiven people. And I pray that in the way we deal with others day to day, that we would show people the importance of knowing Jesus Christ and that in our dealings with others we would remember not simply our frustrations because there are many in my life but that they would see the promise of Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending him to die for us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.